in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And uh, yeah, I am at the IBM Think 2018 conference, which is why this sounds a little different than normal. Uh, I am in a hotel room over at the Excalibur Casino, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what I saw and some of the talks that I went to. And um, I, I learned a lot of interesting things. Now, one thing to say is that the Think Conference, it's all about IBM and IBM's partners and customers. And unlike a lot of companies that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, uh, IBM doesn't really have consumer-facing businesses. In other words, it's not like you go to the store and you go buy IBM stuff. IBM mostly makes things for other companies. And as such, we don't necessarily have to, uh, we don't necessarily encounter it directly. We encounter IBM's products because they are inside other things that we are using. So, uh, it's interesting to go to these events and to hear these talks because a lot of it is stuff that is very much relevant for business leaders or for IT professionals or for, uh, infrastructure engineers, that kind of thing, but less so for the general public uh, unless you step back a little bit. Even so, there were some really interesting talks that talked about uh, where the future is headed as far as uh, very big, broad technologies, and I thought that that would be the best way to kind of tackle this, to talk about these sort of trends that have been identified and these predictions that have been made about these kinds of tech, because those are the sort of things that are going to affect us moving forward, us being, you know, the average person as opposed to people who are running a a tech company. One of the things that they talked about, uh, both at the, the keynote speech that was technically the very first big keynote speech, that was a Jenny Rometty. Jenny Rometty is the CEO of IBM. She got up and spoke very directly to IBM's partners and customers. She talked about how there are different laws that we have created, more like observations, really, that um, that have described the way technology has developed over the years. Now, the most famous one is one I've talked about numerous times on this show. That would be Moore's Law. Moore's Law, which was proposed by Gordon Moore, of course, he didn't call it Moore's Law, he just made an observation, was about how every 18 months or so, year and a half to two years, the number of discrete components, meaning transistors at that time, on a microchip were doubling. And this observation wasn't about necessarily our technological capabilities, like the ability to make things that small. It was more about the fact that economics demanded that this was the case, that there was enough of a demand to in, to give an incentive to manufacturing facilities that made these microchips to try and make ever smaller components to make more powerful processors. So, in other words, it wasn't so much that we had this the, these egghead scientists locked in a laboratory coming up with new ways to make transistors smaller. It was more like we had money in wheelbarrows outside, and we could only get that money if we made smaller transistors. And so it was really an economic-driven law. But the effect that we have on us, it doesn't really matter. The economic part, we can kind of ignore. What we look at is the fact that our processing power effectively doubles every 18 months or so. So every year and a half to two years, the machines we're using are twice as powerful as the ones that were two years ago. Uh, and that's kind of cool. It means that we keep getting these incredibly uh, sophisticated machines on a regular basis. And a lot of the technology sector's businesses depend upon the continuation of Moore's Law. Uh, later on, I was at a talk with Dr. Michio Kaku, 
who is a famous uh, physicist and futurist. He talked a little bit about the end of the era of Moore's Law. He did not give a specific prediction as to when it would end, but he did say that based just purely on physics alone, it will end. What he meant by that is Moore's Law depends on us shrinking these components down more and more and more. Once you get to the point where the quantum world comes into play, this gets really tricky. And I've talked about this before, too, the fact that if you were to create logic gates that are so thin that an electron could potentially exist on the other side of a logic gate, then sometimes an electron's going to be on the other side of the uh, the electron gate, sort of like it had tunneled through, except it had not physically tunneled through the wall. It's just that it had the probability of potentially being on the other side of that wall. And as long as there's a probability, it means that sometimes that does happen. Even though that, you know, in the classical world, we would say, well, there's a barrier there. You can't just go through a barrier. Didn't go through it. It just appeared on the other side because there was a chance it could. And if there's a chance, then sometimes that does happen. Well, even beyond that, even if you say, well, we'll keep figuring out ways to uh, counteract this quantum uh, effect so that we can keep having microprocessors that are accurate, even with quantum tunneling being an issue, you eventually get down to the point where you're at the atomic scale, meaning the components you are creating are made out of atoms themselves. At this stage, you really, it, it'd be really difficult to counteract those quantum effects. And you would have to abandon this particular approach to uh, computer science and computer architecture, or else it would just uh, collapse in on itself. So Moore's Law, while it was incredibly important and it continues to be incredibly important right now, um, ever since you know the transistor was invented, it 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 only represents the first kind of wave of laws. The next law that they talked about was one they called Metcalfe's Law. Uh, Metcalfe's Law is actually a pretty commonly referred to law, just not necessarily among you know regular folks like me and you. Uh, but Metcalfe's law is about the value of a network. So how do you measure how valuable a network is? Like, If you look at a network of devices and then you look at a different network of devices, how could you say which one is, is quote unquote worth more? Metcalfe's law gives you that, that measurement. It states that the value of a network of a telecommunications network is proportional to the square of the number of connected nodes in the system. So however many nodes are there, and the, the node can be any connected device. They could be a computer, it could be a smartphone, it could be a tablet, it could be a game console. Those nodes collectively end up determining the value of the telecommunications network when you square the number of those nodes. It's those interconnections that make the network uh, uh, valuable. This is incredibly important, again, in the world of business, less so probably for, for me and you. The third one, the third law that they were proposing would be what they were cheekily referring to as Watson's Law. Watson, of course, is not just an artificially intelligent uh, platform for IBM and for IBM's customers and partners. Uh, Watson also refers to the founder of IBM. That was his name, his last name. But Watson's law would be about how the amount of data in a system can be leveraged to get the amount of knowledge out of that data. This sort of, uh, as, as data grows exponentially, our ability to leverage knowledge from that data grows exponentially. So what the heck does that mean? Well, Think of data as just points of information that are not necessarily connected to one another. They're not structured necessarily. Uh, this would be as if I recorded a podcast and I just started to say random words into the microphone. And I did that for 45 minutes to an hour. And okay, smart Alex, you might think that's how I do it now, but you're, you're just mean. You're meanie heads. That's not how I do it. I actually think this stuff out and I, I structure my data so that I create a foundation and then I build upon it. 
that's a very easy way to get knowledge, right? You have the structured format. You can digest it. You can synthesize it. You can then use that yourself. But if the data is unstructured, if the data is about a lot of uh, seemingly unconnected things and it's spread across multiple types of files, let's say that you've got an enormous folder uh, and that folder contains files that are video files, they are documents, they're presentations, they're spreadsheets, they're all these different things that that on casual glance don't have any connectivity to them. How can you make that useful so that you can actually leverage that data and do stuff with it? And that's kind of what IBM was focusing on. And that's really where they were talking about Watson quite a lot. It, it wasn't a lot of people think of Watson as this uh, this the supercomputer that played on Jeopardy, which is not accurate. Watson's not a supercomputer. The machine that ran Watson was just a machine. It it was not the entity itself. Uh, if you wanted to, to get a little metaphysical with this, you could actually think about a human being and you ask, well, what is the human? Is the human being the body, the physical form, or is it the mind, the person, the personality, the emotions, the memories, the things that are, that inhabit the body and also that control the body? Is that the person? And you might argue, well, it's actually the collective. It's the body and the mind. And I think that's a valid argument. You could also argue that Watson ultimately is a uh, platform and the physical machine that runs that platform. I probably wouldn't argue with you too much there either, except I'd say that the platform is more important than anything else in this in this particular case. And by platform, I really just mean set of rules, set of algorithms that Watson uses in order to process information, to look for meaning, to look for uh, results. So let's take that Jeopardy example. Uh, Jeopardy, in Jeopardy, Watson played against two former champions, one of whom now records podcasts for How Stuff Works. So that's kind of awesome. And Watson was uh, playing by looking at a clue or looking, quote unquote, it was the clues being fed to Watson and then going through its massive amount of data and trying to use that to figure out what the answer is. And it wasn't just looking at a list of trivia or facts. It's not like it's looking at an enormous table and every cell in that table is filled with a different fact, like George Washington was the first president of the United States. Instead, it's looking at a massive library of information and pulling bits and pieces of that information together to formulate an idea of what the answer is. And if that formulation reaches a certain threshold of confidence, Watson would then ring in and present that answer. So it's, it's not that it's looking at, you know, a, a very long trivia book. It's looking at all this information and drawing conclusions from it the way similar to how a human being would not, not completely analogous, but similar. And, uh, so using Watson, you could leverage your unstructured data. You, you put Watson in, in to work at this and Watson would start to look for meaningful connections between data points and, pulling relevant information about any given query. So then Watson becomes an agent that you could interact with. And this agent's job is kind of like a reference librarian. It's to go to the massive amount of information that's at its disposal and return to you the relevant points of information. This is not that different from the way people were thinking about Web 3.0 when that was a big discussion. Uh, you may remember that like uh, people would talk about how right now, if you use a search engine, typically the way it works is you type something in the search engine and it pulls up a list of websites that may or may not have what you're looking for on those websites. So if you might, you might be looking for a, uh, let's say a, a, it's a, um, a history of the crusades and you type that into the search engine and it pulls for you a bunch of different sites written by different people. Some of them might be very easy to read and understand. Some of them might be less easy to read, but they might be more accurate and more uh, unbiased with the information. You don't necessarily know at the top of it. You have to go through and read all that yourself. 
But the Web 3.0 search engines, this was something that Wolfram Alpha was trying to be, would pull the uh, relevant information, not websites, but the relevant information from those websites and present it to you. And that way you could look over the important bits of information. You skip over everything else. Uh, you're given the correct context. In theory, you could even have an agent like this that could learn about you and your learning styles and thus present the information to you in a way that is most helpful to you. So it's a very big difference between the way we do searches now and the way that this proposed method would work. And that's kind of what Watson's doing. So you've got this this user-facing aspect of Watson. It's kind of like a chatbot. And you can send that chatbot requests, and then the chatbot will try and pull the information for you. Or you can use it to generate reports that say that you are a business owner and you want to look at some information that's going to pull things from presentations, predictions, results. Maybe you've got like a, a end of the quarter report. Maybe you want to take a look at information from reports from your supply chain. All this kind of complicated stuff. And Watson could go out, uh, curate and present this information in a way that has meaning to you, that where you can understand what's going on and you can draw conclusions. Uh, this actually was a pretty interesting concept to me. I mean, I've seen some implementations of Watson that do this and they do it in such a simple, a seemingly simple way that's deceptive. You start to forget that there is a very powerful computer algorithm that is controlling all of this because the implementation itself might be pretty straightforward. So for an example, uh, I went to the weather company uh, last year in 2017. And while I was there, I had a chance to talk to a team that was using Watson in a lot of different implementations. And, uh, you know, they were using it as the basis of a customer service platform or to respond to requests. And, when you first look at that, it looks deceptively simple. You're asking, well, what's the weather going to be like? And you get results. Uh, that that doesn't seem like it's that hard. You would figure that, oh, well, they're just going to pull whatever the record is for my location uh, for tomorrow and present it to me. But a lot more could be going on behind the scenes. And I think that's part of the problem that IBM has been dealing with and kind of one of the reasons why they've made such a big deal of it at this conference. It's because... The perception of what Watson is may be a little too narrow, a little too uh, uh, focused on little aspects of what Watson does and ignores the big picture. So they've, they've definitely <laughs> doubled down on that. I went to a talk called Journey to AI that was really all about this. And they talked all about the, the different variations of artificial intelligence. And, uh, one of the things they mentioned was the, the very different views of what AI is. Uh, for example, you've got simple AI. Simple AI would include some of the stuff I talked about in a previous episode about, uh, the little aspects of intelligence that are very, very narrow, uh, just a slice of the pie of intelligence, but they do represent what intelligence is in, in just a very specific application. So image recognition is an example of that, or voice recognition, or natural language processing even is part of that. These are all aspects of intelligence. Uh, you would not call a machine that lacks one of these things truly intelligent, but you also wouldn't call a machine that only has one of these things truly intelligent. So if I have a smartphone and the smartphone is able to recognize uh, images, so I'm, I'm, I point my smartphone at something and it even labels what that thing is. Maybe it says, oh, well, that's a specific model and uh, make of car. Or maybe it says that building is a, a historic landmark or this park is going to have a concert uh, at, at it the next day or something along those lines. That's cool. That image recognition is really cool, but I wouldn't call my smartphone intelligent. Similarly, if my smartphone happens to have one of those digital assistants on it, and it does, I've got an Android phone, so I've got the Google Assistant on there. Um, I can talk to that and it can retrieve information for me 
It can do tasks for me. I can use it to make calls. I can uh, use it to send text messages, or I can use it to search for information on my phone or on the internet. I still wouldn't call my phone intelligent. It has an aspect of intelligence. Similarly, if I had a supercomputer that could uh, listen to voice commands, respond in natural language, and do these other things, but it couldn't do any image recognition, I would feel I would I would notice that lack, and I wouldn't call that intelligent. On the other side of the scale, you have general AI, uh, where you know the the classic image of this is you've got a, a big machine that can do. Uh, that can do general thinking, like thinking that's analogous to human thinking. It can process information. It can draw conclusions. It can synthesize data. It can um, innovate. It may even be self-aware, although the whether or not self-awareness is directly tied to intelligence is a matter of philosophical debate. Talking about general AI, I mean, that's that's a hard, hard goal to hit. We honestly don't know what it will take to get there, it may be that we are 30 years away from having a true general AI. It may be much longer than that. It may be a century away, or it may even be impossible for us to do based upon our technological abilities right now. Most technologists think that it is attainable, but they don't know exactly what it's going to take to get there. So there's some argument about the timeline. But there are a lot of interesting things that can happen between those simple uh, versions of AI and that that crazy general AI that that you know science fiction writers write about and warn us about. And that's where this this ability to deal with unstructured data comes in. And uh, designing AI is part of that problem, but as they mentioned in multiple presentations here at IBM, it's not just building the artificial intelligence to do this that's a challenge. It's also incorporating that artificial intelligence into existing work practices because most businesses have existed for a while now. It's not like you can just slot AI in necessarily. It's not like a, a module you plug in and everything works properly. You might have to reevaluate and redesign work processes in order to make this happen. And again, this gets a little little dry and technical if you're not really into the business side of things. But when you start thinking about it, you realize, yeah, it's not enough to just build a tool. You have to figure out how's the best way to use that tool with respect to the things you're already trying to do. Uh, they started talking about impotence match. <laughs> the engineers were chat chatting all about impotence match between man and machine to get machines to process human language and commands and to return information that would be useful to humans and to eventually get rid of that boundary between man and machine so that decisions can be made together and implemented together. So this gets into that concept of augmented intelligence, not that we are trying to create a supercomputer that is incredibly intelligent and we will then uh, reference the supercomputer as if it were an oracle or a deity, instead talking about creating machines that would work al right alongside people and the machines could help fill in the gaps that would be there because of the human failings that are in all of us. And humans could provide all the bits that machines are not good at. And together we could be better. And that we have to get to a point where we have to trust the machines as a an assistant. And the machines have to, quote unquote, trust us as teachers. By trust us, they don't necessarily mean that the machines are going to be harboring doubts. But rather that humans are the ones designing these machines. And we have to make certain that we do so in a way that is responsible, that is ethical, that is inclusive. Otherwise, we end up with bad machines. And it's not that the machines themselves were were inherently wicked, but rather they were poorly designed. I've got more to say about the Journey to AI presentation at IBM Think 2018. But before I go into it, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. over at IBM are arguing that every single industry across the world is going to be affected by this sort of transformation 
of uh, of data and knowledge. Uh, they started referencing things like retail optimization or the oil industry or automotive industries, shipping, uh, all of these things they said were going to transform dramatically over the next few years due to this kind of technology. Uh, and they talked about how the one field you can look at right now that is undergoing such a transformation is healthcare. All uh, healthcare is, is transforming because we are seeing not just advanced tools come into hospitals and doctor's offices, but also these programs like Watson, where a doctor can actually turn to Watson as a, a colleague, almost like someone up here who can uh, provide more information, a second opinion, if you will. In fact, uh, IBM brought up some representatives from the American Cancer Society and some uh, very uh, prestigious cancer research hospitals to talk about this and about how cancer is a really, really difficult problem. It is uh, it is a complicated disease. Really, when you think about it, cancer is a, a, a family of diseases. It's not just a single illness, but rather a, a whole a whole suite of illnesses. There are hundreds of different types of cancer. Now, to make it more complicated, there are different methods for diagnosing and treating all these different types of cancer. And that obviously means that you have to be very careful when you're an oncologist, a cancer specialist, to correctly identify, to diagnose, and to treat specific types of cancer. Because a treatment for one type may not be effective for a different type. And not every place in the world has access to incredibly gifted, uh, educated oncologists. If you happen to be fortunate enough to live in a major city in a well-developed nation, then you may live close to a teaching hospital, in which case you have the access to incredible specialists who have dedicated their lives to learning and fighting cancer. But if you live in a small town, and you don't have uh, that access, then you, you your options are severely limited. Well, IBM and Watson, one of the first problems they were looking at tackling outside of, you know, once developing the, the platform was using Watson to help doctors treat cancer. And the way Watson works, the way it's effective, is that you have to feed it information, Without the data, Watson is useless. Uh, Watson is good at analyzing data, curating data, and producing results. But in order to do that, you have to give it data. So what the IBM did was they reached out to the American Cancer Society, and they talked with them about feeding Watson data about cancer. The American Cancer Society had millions of data sets and clinical records that they used to help train Watson to understand how the diagnosis and treatment processes for different types of cancer actually went. So this was like Watson getting a crash course in oncology. And from that information, which is constantly being refreshed with new research, with new experiments, with new treatments, that also can then go to Watson Watson is able to look at a, a huge set of data points and look at the effectiveness overall of any given diagnosis method or treatment. So in other words, you might have conducted a series of experiments and determined that one particular approach is the most effective. And that's why you, that's your go-to approach for looking at that type of cancer. Watson, however, can look across the entire set of data points, not just from your experiments and your work and your research, but everyone else's that has been part of the American Cancer Society's work. And then Watson can say, you know, yeah, that that method out of all the ones you've tried has worked best for you. But there's this other methodology that is even more effective that you have not yet tried that you didn't even know about. But because I have access to all the information, which is far, far greater than what any human could navigate, I can tell you that based upon the success rate, 
of all those cases, this is something you should try. And thus, Watson becomes that cancer specialist who can provide a second opinion. Uh, this is a very powerful tool, something that can legitimately save lives. And it is of a real consequence to those of us in the audience who are not just trying to create a business or and I shouldn't say just, but are trying to create a business or trying to figure out how to uh, streamline our, our backend processes as we try to do whatever it is we do. This is life and death for millions of, of people around the world. Uh, it's a really interesting case study too. I mean, that so far Watson is being used in more than 200 hospitals across the world. More than 10,000 patients are able to take advantage of this using Watson to help, uh, make decisions. Really, it's the physicians who are using Watson to kind of guide themselves and get that second opinion which may or may not confirm what the original physician had concluded, help refine approaches, help give options to patients, which obviously is also really important. And when you consider that this year alone, in 2018, 1.7 million Americans will be diagnosed with cancer, you realize this is a very big deal. And of course, that's just the United States. Obviously, global numbers will be much higher. And again, if you happen to live in a, a country like the United States and you're near a learning hospital, you then might have access to people who are the leading practitioners, the leading thinkers, leading researchers in cancer. But if you live in a developing nation where you have a much worse ratio of doctor to patients, then you would really want to have access to this deep level of expertise. That's the whole concept. So, uh, they all, the, the folks up on stage, the, the representatives from Memorial Sloan Kettering, which is a, a cancer treatment center and also of the American Cancer Society, were citing some really interesting, uh, um, statistics. So in the United States, where we have a lot of oncologists, a lot of cancer specialists, on average, every oncologist has about 100 patients, which, you know, that's, that's a lot of patients, but if you, Think about it, you realize, well, that might be manageable for a single oncologist. But in other parts of the world, it's more like the number, you look at the number of oncologists versus the number of people who are dealing with cancer, and it becomes 10,000 patients to one oncologist. At that scale, it is impossible, no matter how gifted and intelligent and educated you are, to be able to handle that enormous amount of, of work uh, without help. And so again, that was where they were citing use of Watson as a way to help offload some of this, this very difficult work that the oncologists do and get guidance from expertise from around the world. And again, this is not Watson coming up with new treatments. This is an artificially intelligent platform for a very narrow definition of AI, looking at an enormous data set that was generated by humans, by human beings. So we're not saying that there's a computer doctor out there that's better than human doctors, that it's smarter than we are. Moreover, it's more like saying we have the world's best librarian that is looking at the mass collected knowledge base on a very specific subject and returning the results that are relevant to any given query to help with human decisions. So that's where that augmenting intelligence comes in. It's not that you've got a robo-doctor. It's that you've got a robo-reference librarian who is able to reference all the human doctors and see what has worked the best. That's a good way of looking at Watson in general when you want to understand what it does and what it could do in lots of different contexts. Uh, it's, again, something that could help with handling any large set of data points. It wouldn't have to be medical, although that's an easy way to understand how that could uh, be an effective use. Another possible use of Watson would be for uh, the purposes of augmented reality, where you are using uh, something like a smartphone, let's say, to take images 
of whatever it is you're looking at, and you're asking Watson to give you guidance on how to deal with a situation. So imagine that you are an auto mechanic, and you have a vehicle come in that is not not frequently found in your area, so you haven't had a lot of experience working on it. You, you know, you, you have good working knowledge of automobiles in general, but you don't know the particulars of this specific make and model. And you lift up the hood and you're looking at the engine and you're looking at different parts and you see one particular part that you believe is the problem. So you take a photo of it and then you have a Watson assistant that's working with you on an app that's specifically written for your line of work. So in other words, Watson is really just looking at a data set that is relevant to auto mechanics. It's not like it's the world's, it's not looking at all the information across the internet or anything like that. This is a specific implementation of the platform. And then Watson references its information, returns the, uh, the results to you and explains what that part is, what are some of the common problems, what is, you know, basically what is the problem that you have encountered specifically? How do you address it? Do you have repairs you can make? Do you need to replace the part? If you do need to replace the part, where would you get it? How long will it take to get there? Essentially, all the information you need as a mechanic in order to fix the problem and also to alert your customer, hey, here's what's going on. Here's how much it's going to cost. Here's how long it's going to take. Um, and you could even answer why. You could find out where the the delays are, if it's going to be something that's going to take like, well, it's going to take two weeks. Why? Well, because here's the obscure part that I need to order. And here's the really complicated supply chain of how it's going to have to get to me. And I can't speed that up because I have no control over it. If you're able to actually explain that to the customer, then you can, you know, maybe take some of the heat off. And you can also probably say, hey, next time buy a car that's not so, uh, you know, exotic. It's something that I can work on. No, no, don't victim blame. That's not cool. But you, you could at least explain the, the, the context of what's happening. And, uh, I found this really interesting. They also talked about how Watson could also work with companies that have much smaller data sets that, you know, obviously you have different scales here. If you look at all the information on a consumer facing business, uh, where they're collecting information about the people who use the product, then the data sets could potentially be enormous. A good example of this would be Facebook, which of course is, is going through a massive scandal right now due to a company that collected data and then tried to leverage it in a way that was unethical at best. So Facebook has m more than a billion users. And people use Facebook a lot. And people who are using Facebook a ton are sharing a lot of information about themselves, either directly or indirectly. So you have this massive amount of data that Facebook is collecting and sitting on top of. And using a device like or a, 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 an API a platform like Watson to go through all that data and pull meaningful information from it could create some really uh, powerful strategies. You could figure out trends and be able to leverage them and you could do them in ways that were maybe helpful or maybe exploitative, probably the second, uh, but you would have a huge amount of data. That's really the point I'm getting at is because you've got an engaged user base that is enthusiastically handing information over, you would have an enormous data set, but you could also use a tool like Watson for internal processes. Like let's say that you are a company and let's say that you're part of a, a shipping company. So you need to be able to keep track of all the suppliers, the destinations, the, the, the way that you're actually moving product from point A to point B. It's a lot of moving parts, a lot of logistics, but it's it, it, on the whole, if you look at all the data and you were to say like, let's fill up, you know, two containers with raw information, it would be a fraction of the size of something like Facebook. Like, yeah, there are a lot of data points and it's complicated. It's too complicated for humans to navigate easily, but it's not like it's the huge amount of data that's generated on a daily basis from Facebook. Watson still, however, has the capability of learning even from smaller data sets. So again, this was IBM talking to their partners and their customers saying, hey, uh, I know that we're talking about using Watson for these really, really big ideas and these really 
uh, world-changing applications that are relying upon millions and millions of records. But Watson can also work for you. That was kind of the message. Uh, and, you know, that was a very compelling one. There were they, they brought up several people to talk about how this has been used. For example, they, they brought up the CEO of Orange Bank. Orange is a, a telecommunications company. And the telecommunications company decided that they were going to create a financial institution as well. So an actual bank. And they, the bank had decided that one of the things they wanted to do was create a, an interface for their customers that would make it very easy to deal with routine sort of, uh, problems and questions and, uh, and provide information without the need to reference that customer up to a, a human customer service representative, which is a delicate thing to do. You want to make sure that you are serving your customers properly. You don't want to turn them off. You don't want them to log in. They see a chat bot and they say, Oh, well, no one cares about me. They just put me in touch with a robot. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to have to deal with uh, you know, customer service representatives answering the same mundane questions over and over again. That makes it hard to have an engaged and, uh, and happy workforce. So there's a delicate balance here. What Orange decided to do was create a virtual advisor. They named the virtual advisor Jingo, D-J-I-N-G-O. And Jingo uses Watson as the the foundation for what it does. And as the CEO explained, it's the customer's first point of contact for the bank. And Jingo can respond to a lot of different common queries. And they could be very general ones that are sort of bank-wide kind of questions, or they could be very specific to the individual. And they said that Jingo is the most effective agent they've seen and that Jingo also never has to take a break. Uh, Jingo can work 24-7 and is never tired and can respond to most requests without the need to funnel customers to other agents. So this was an example of an industry that has a, a relatively small data set compared to something like Facebook. A bank, even with a lot of customers, isn't going to be dealing with the same volume of information as a social media network would. What else can we expect when AI starts to insinuate its way into our daily lives? Well, I'll tell you about it in just a minute. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. IBM also chatted about how AI could help out in the field of human resources, that HR is another one of those those departments in most companies that has to field a lot of the same questions over and over. And it may be that there are lots of different policies that the HR representative has to go through and find the relevant information. And uh, while the HR representative might have access to all that, he or she may not automatically know the answer. And so it takes time and effort to hunt down the answers that employees might have for HR professionals. So IBM had also kind of mentioned that Watson would be an ideal tool for that as well. So if you need to ask about specific forms or policies or uh, compensation packages, all the sort of things that HR folks have to deal with, you could have a an artificially intelligent platform do that on your behalf, which was also kind of interesting. So there were several other folks that they brought up on stage to chat about, you know, their experiences implementing Watson in different ways. Uh, it was very much all about here. Here's what this this API is really for and how you might use it and not, you know, trying to get away from Watson is the the computer program that won on Jeopardy or Watson was this quirky platform that could come up with dynamically created recipes based upon the ingredients you fed to it. Uh, the whole idea was to create something that would have multiple use cases on multiple scales. And I found it, I found it helpful to get a better grip on exactly what Watson is and is not, um, it was a, a fascinating discussion. We saw a lot of interesting people. Uh, we saw the CEO of NVIDIA come out and talk about 
partnering with IBM to pair GPUs and CPUs together to create the most powerful machines that are able to process enormous amounts of information in a very short amount of time. They talked about how uh, this is the sort of, of uh, technology that's powering the next generation of machines like autonomous cars. Uh, they also even acknowledged the fact that this is a, a still a young field and they acknowledged the the tragic accident that happened in Arizona when a an autonomous SUV uh, that was that belonged to Uber struck and killed a pedestrian as she was walking her bicycle across the street they took some time to actually talk about this and say uh, this is a horrible tragedy and nothing should distract us from the fact that you know this this person passed away and her family is dealing with the the aftermath of that and it's terrible and it also forces us to acknowledge that these things we're working on are life and death situations they are not trivial they're not something that are it's not just an engineering problem it's not just a kind of a hypothetical situation these are are Technologies that could potentially save or end lives if the technology is implemented one way or another. So it behooves us to be extremely careful to figure out how to do it properly. Uh, the CEO of NVIDIA also talked about just how complicated this whole process is for, for vehicles and mentioned that, you know, some people might think that a car is just sort of processing one big stream of data and making decisions on how to proceed based on that. Cause that's kind of how humans do it, right? Like we perceive stuff and then we have to respond to it. We have to react to it, but machines do this in a different way. They are, they're collecting different individual streams of data and each of those streams needs to be analyzed and processed. And then the collective uh, information needs to be analyzed and processed so that the right reaction can take place. So it's, it's almost like you can think of each sensor as sending its information to a centralized location. And then all of those collective information streams from all of those sensors has to be, uh, synthesized and analyzed. And then the reaction has to take place. So it makes it sound way more complicated than you might originally imagine. I certainly, felt that way. We got to watch a video of a an eight-minute drive of an autonomous car down country roads in New Jersey, showing how it would navigate down the roads, even properly navigating when there were no road signs available, uh, making certain that the car was behaving the way it was supposed to. And as they were pointing out, like even the in this scenario, it was nice weather, it was during the daytime, uh, even in that scenario, it's a complicated thing to make a machine do that properly. And then you start imagining all the different additional complications that could arise, like bad weather or night driving or heavier traffic and uh, or even things like wildlife running across the street. You realize this is a lot more difficult than just sensing a potential obstacle in the road and taking the right course of action to avoid hitting it. In fact, according to the CEO, he said that every car needs about a hundred servers to process all the information. And, uh, they were using a fleet of around a hundred cars. So, or 200 cars, so they had a thousand to 2000 servers dedicated just to processing information in order to develop this technology in the first place. So it becomes an incredibly difficult thing to do. Well, that was kind of the overall story of the journey to AI. This, this discussion of being in this, this middle period between developing these very hyper focused tools and in artificial intelligence and the goal of getting general and in artificial intelligence. The idea of uh, using AI as kind of a, an assistant to performing very complicated tasks, complicated from a computational standpoint, also complicated from uh, just a com just from how much data is there. Again, if you if you put a human being in charge of going through all that information to find the most relevant and useful information, it would take hours or days or years depending upon the data set. Whereas a artificially intelligent 
properly designed program can do it in a fraction of that time and do it dynamically request after request after request and can continuously update its answers based upon fresh information coming into the data set. Uh, I found it really interesting and it gives me a lot of hope for the future for various implementations of this type of technology, whether it's Watson or some comparable technology. Uh, and I really think it's going to be interesting for all sorts of different applications, some of which we as consumers will interact with directly, whether it's a customer service agent or maybe it's a personal assistant, something that gets to know us and our routines. We're starting to see that a little bit in some of the personal assistants like Google Home, uh, Siri, Alexa, that kind of thing. We see a little bit there, but it'll continue to grow more sophisticated and more proactive to the point where we can have kind of like a, it's almost like having a, an AI life coach right at your disposal. So I found it all very fascinating and I hope to learn a lot more about lots of different topics while I'm here at the Think Conference. Uh, I can't wait to chat with you guys more about quantum computing. I actually got to see a a model of what a quantum computer looks like and boy howdy, it does not look like a normal computer. But uh, I'll definitely do an episode about that to talk more about what quantum computers are, how they work, why they are important, and where we might be going with it, and uh, maybe talk a little bit more about some of the the stuff Dr. Michio Kaku said, maybe some of the stuff that Neil deGrasse Tyson said. I went to his talk as well, and uh, they were very fascinating. They weren't quite as tech-oriented as I would like to do a full episode, like a recap on them, but I might touch on some of the themes they talked about and their meaning to me as just a a person who loves tech and the tech sector in general, because uh, they both gave very fascinating presentations. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it is a technology, a company, a person, maybe there's someone you want me to interview, uh, let me know. Send me a message. The email address for the show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram, that account uh, is always showing interesting behind-the-scenes information, so make sure you go check that out. And on Wednesdays and Fridays, typically, I record live. I stream my recording sessions on twitch.tv slash techstuff. So you can come and watch me record one of these episodes. There's a chat room there. You can jump in there and chat with me live as I'm recording, although I don't respond until I hit a break because otherwise I find it too distracting and I ramble and that does not make for good podcasting but uh please come on by say hello i would love to see you there and i'll talk to you again really soon for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 